I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you this morning that we have uh, opportunity to gather together and encourage one another and be encouraged by your word and, and the truth that we find there, Lord. I pray that uh, this morning would be productive, not only now, but in the future, that as we look to your word, we would rightly handle it, that we would treat it with the respect that it deserves, Lord, not only as a, a work of, of literature in which it has uh, been proven time and time again to be the most amazing one ever created, but also, Lord, as, as your divine word that uh, has the power to uh, cut through even to our very soul, Lord, and and is the power to actually lift you up and give you glory like nothing else can. Lord, we just thank you that it is available to us, and we pray that we would honor it for what it is. In your son's name, amen. Now, having prayed that prayer, it's important to note, we don't worship the Bible. We don't venerate the Bible. We, The Bible itself is not a... Uh, icon to be lifted up and, and uh, held above all other things. It's not the fourth portion of the Godhead, but it is still incredibly important for the reasons that I mentioned in prayer. We've finished Genesis and uh, providentially, I have two weeks to go and I don't really want to start a new book in two weeks and uh, Matt and I have to get together and figure out how we're going to go forward for next year as he finishes up Daniel. Um, once he starts up in two weeks, he'll be uh, going in there and I'll just fill in the gaps when he needs to. So I wanted to take this opportunity to look at some of the lessons that we can get from studying Genesis. There's two ways to approach Scripture. I think two two right ways. One is easy, er, and one is difficult. Um, one is, uh, it keeps you within some, some guardrails as you go down the highway, and one allows you to uh, a little more freedom to go off in the trail and explore, but that's often when you can get lost and you'll end up where you didn't think you would, and you might actually find yourself in a bit of trouble. I like to teach the first way, and that is to go through verse by verse through a passage and preferably through a book because that keeps you grounded in what the author's original intent was as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. And you, you can always compare, does this thought fit with what came before it in the chapter? Does this fit with the line that's coming along here? Um, and, and, and more importantly, did when the author wrote this, like in Genesis, when Moses put together Genesis and gave it to the people, how would they have understood Genesis? How would they have looked at it? And what would they have gotten out of it? Because ultimately, we need to put ourselves in their position and have an understanding of how they would have viewed it, because that was the original intent. And then we can, we can extrapolate some of that out and uh, and learn some of the lessons as we go through those passages. But it's really nice, I can tell you from, from a teacher's standpoint, to be up here and have those things that are for sure and certain um, as you walk through. And you can follow, I can follow the same techniques that I was taught in, in high school and in undergrad. Um, I was an English major, 
And so I, I enjoy literature and I can follow the exact same rules of literature that I learned in college. I don't know what they teach in college now, but back, back in the 90s, I could use those things to help me understand what the scriptures are saying because it is written literature. God has chosen to use that form as the main way he communicates with us today. And he communicates very directly through that. So I have some comfort in that. The other option is to do something more topical. And that would be to say, well, what about um, homosexuality? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, let's go through and everywhere where it's mentioned in the Bible, let's look and see what it says. Or uh, what does the Bible say about creation? Um, and then you could say, well, what about the things that aren't mentioned in the Bible? What about abortion? How do you, how do you deal with abortion? You find out it actually is mentioned in a couple places. Um, but some of those topics that aren't clearly delineated in Scripture, how do we find the answers to those? And that starts to become a little more difficult. Uh, as problems arise, as issues arise, being able to turn to Scripture and find those things and not take a verse or two that mentions, um, you know, there's episodes in the Old Testament where a nation would come in and to conquer the, the nation that they were attacking, they would take all the women and cut open their wombs and not allow them and, and kill their babies. Well, what does that teach us about abortion? Well, you want to be real careful because that's a little bit different than what we deal with, but it does have some things to say about the value of human life and the value of those who aren't born. But it's, it's challenging at best. Genesis lends itself to some topical discussion that I think are very good. So if you were to look at some of the main lessons of Genesis, what are some of the topics that you find in Genesis from chapter 1 to chapter 50? Creation. creation. Yeah. So creation and what does, what does the Bible teach us about creation and what are the implications of creation? We're actually going to touch on that this morning. We're going to look at that is to kind of overlap these two techniques. What are some other subjects? Order. What do you mean by order? Order of events and order of how things should be done. Okay, yeah. Um, God is certainly linear through time. He has a plan that moves forward as it marches through time, and this is the way things should be done. Other topics? Sin. Sin. What is Sin. What are the effects of sin? What is, uh, uh, how did sin come about? What's our role in sin? Yeah, a lot of those, uh, that's covered time and time again. Yeah, I have a list of a bunch of things, and uh, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute. But needless to say, Genesis does lend itself to somewhat of a topical study. And it, you could even kind of combine the two and say, well, let's start in Genesis 1 and go through Genesis 50. And as we're teaching through it, let's grab on and really focus on every time there's something about uh, the kingdom of God. Um, or every time there's something about sovereignty. And again, one of, those, one of those dangers as you study Scripture on your own is that you want to be careful that you're not looking at a, um, letting that topic take control of the text. Because very often the text isn't about the same topic all the way through. We did that a little bit uh, looking at the kingdom of God um, and the mentions over and over again 
of this picture of, the, of Eden and, and using that as a reference point as we move forward. Even, even the way Joseph received power in Egypt was not all that different than God giving Adam power in the garden. So those things are present and, and it's important, but it's not always what the, the text, the main point of the text is. So you've got to put things in perspective. Same time, Genesis is interesting, and not all scriptures like this. There's different types of literature in the Bible. So who would who would know what Genesis is? What type of literature is that? Most of it, stories. Is that what you said? Somebody, historical. Okay, so it's historical. Um, so it kind of is. What's the what's another type? It's poetic. There are certainly parts of it that are poetic, and even in the first two chapters, it's, the chapter one is, is poetic. What's that? Prophetic. prophetic. There's parts where there's prophecy mentioned. There's narrative, where it's a story that's going on, certainly the life of Joseph. By the way, who's the, who is the number one character in length of chapters that his life lasts in, in Genesis? Do you guys know? You want to guess? No, in Genesis. That's who I thought too. It's not. It's Jacob. Jacob is around from like chapter 28 or something like that through 50. And he, he's, Joseph only has one more chapter than Jacob does. So the main, you say main character of Genesis is actually all about Jacob, whose other name is? It's weird. It's too bad. It must be that that's what the book is about, is the creation of the, or that's certainly how it culminates, is in the creation of that country. That nation, it's not a country yet. Um, so some things, some things are clearly stated. Um, Genesis, as it marches through time, is a narrative of, of events that take us from creation all the way to uh, Joseph dying at the end, and the the people of Israel being established in Egypt to grow. Um, And then uh, some things we sort of understand as as we march through. Some things we just assume and you don't even realize that you were taught them because they're not necessarily mentioned in the text. So if you go to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving on the surface of the waters. So in this, we have that uh, God is, is the Lord of all creation, and we're going to find out even over man um, that there isn't any part of creation that isn't, um, or that is, is somehow underneath it's forming is underneath the understanding of man. It's all above even his understanding. And, and ultimately, uh, God, the Godhead, in verse 1, the, the word Elohim for God there is plural. Even, even the Trinity is starting to be mentioned. And some of these things are happening in the background. But, but we kind of learn them as we go without even realizing it, without them being directly stated. So if you look at uh, Job, Job 38... There's some, there's some major implications that are made sometimes in Scripture that, that aren't, 
that aren't clearly stated but are huge in our own understanding of who we are and who God is and what is our, our place in the world. And certainly creation gives us that. So we have this picture where Job is talking directly to God as he and his friends all have kind of a a warped understanding of who God is and what their place is. They have this understanding, and it'd be great to go through Job because I think we sometimes fall into, we could sometimes fall into some of the traps that all these men have. All of Job's friends basically believe that Job, in order for you to be punished, you have to have done something wrong. And that's why bad things are happening to you. And Job is, is arguing that, well, um, I've done nothing wrong and therefore I shouldn't be punished. And God is saying, no, 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 you guys don't understand. Whether you're punished or not doesn't necessarily tie with what you've done. Sometimes it does. But ultimately, I do what I want to do. Now, reading through Genesis 1, 1 and 2, you would, not many of us would walk away. Well, the main thing I get away from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is that when bad things happen to me, I, I really don't have an understanding of why, and I just have to trust God. Yet that's what God here turns to Job and says in, in verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's saying, Job, talking to you. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? It's a great picture of of a carpenter stretching out a chalk line, to make, well, not necessarily a chalk line, but stretching out a line so everything is perfectly straight and in order, and he knows everything, everything's been measured. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and said, thus far you shall come but no further and here you, your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. And he goes on and and talks about the gloriousness of creation. And God there, through the author of Job, is saying, when you read Genesis, what should impact you during hard times is that I'm in control and I decide things because I'm above you and my ways are higher and you 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 don't even understand how it is I laid the foundations of the world so some sometimes there are there are things that we should understand that aren't really fully explained in Genesis that's not explained in Genesis and yet we should take that out of there and and learn those things about God and sometimes it's very easy to 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 miss some of those things in some gaps we don't understand until they've been uh explained as we progress forward um they're filled over time and and those can be a little bit of of a challenge, 
for us. And, and if all you had was the Old Testament in Genesis, you'd want to be really careful about what happened before verse 1, right? So what does it say, what do we get from Genesis about what's going on before the creation of the world? Not a whole lot, right? So our understanding of that has grown. So that now we have a better understanding of what happened in Genesis, but we don't necessarily get it from Genesis. If we, if we start in John 1.1, 1, 1, a verse that mirrors Genesis 1. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in, oh, so he, the word is a, is a personality. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. Well, this must be a beginning that's even before the beginning of Genesis 1-1, because here things are coming into being. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There John goes all the way from before even creation to creation, and then even to the point where the, the word, which we find is, is Christ himself, has come and gives light and life to men. So we see that, okay, there is a gap there in Genesis, and uh, Further progressive, as, as God reveals more and more to man, here we have it being revealed that there is a trinity and that sure enough, Jesus was present at creation and that through him, everything came into, be, into being. Colossians 1, for those of you that study your Bibles, are, are probably your mind's going there. As well, Colossians gives us also some further explanation to what's going on before creation, building on what's revealed in, in, in Genesis, but then showing us this much more as the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write to the Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Both the he- in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is, creation exists by him, for him, through him, and for him. So we, we again, uh, as things are revealed to us, we have greater understanding. And now we also understand that it is through Jesus himself, through, through Christ, through the Messiah, that all of creation is put together and formed. It's by him, through him, and for him. There's also an interesting term there that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn is an interesting phrase. That could get confusing, couldn't it? Is Christ born? Was Jesus ever born? Other than, because this isn't talking about his, his virgin birth. So what are they referring to there? What did we learn about firstborn in Genesis? 
Who is the firstborn? Who's a first? Who's a firstborn in Genesis? Name one. Cain. Okay. And who was the good one? Okay, so you have Cain and Abel, and, and Seth is eventually who the line comes. Name another firstborn that wasn't the firstborn. Esau, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the firstborn, but who was the, who was the firstborn? Who received the rights of the firstborn? Jacob. Is there, are there any others? Who else? Go another generation down. Joseph. Joseph was the one who received the coat of many colors. He's the one who has that position of firstborn. Is he the firstborn? No. What about uh, Ephraim and Manasseh? Again, switching of the hands for the blessing. The firstborn of all life. So how is it that Christ is the firstborn? How is he actually the preeminent one? It's interesting, the same thing comes up in Psalms 110 when David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth from your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. David here is is referring to someone who's someday going to rule from Zion. David has an understanding. God has promised David that in your line is, your line is going to be perpetual. Your line will always be the line where the king comes from. So this is a descendant of David who he now calls Lord. Christ, the coming Messiah, will be considered as the firstborn in the line of David, even though he comes much later. So we get this idea of of the firstborn. If we look further uh, at some of the things that happened before, John 17, 24. Jesus in his high priestly prayer is praying for his in his high priestly prayer, is praying for his disciples. And he refers back to before there was time. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So even before creation, there's a relationship between father and son here that's present. And this glory that's given to him that's even present before the foundations of the world. So before there was time, the Father had loved the Son. And then what about us? Do we, do we, how are we at play there at the beginning of Genesis? And if over in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 3 through, 6, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Yeah, we can all, we're like, yes, one of the things is here at church. So yeah, I get that. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So again, this is before Genesis 1, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself 
according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he do it? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So before there was time, we see the whole of the plan of redemption and God predestinating, predestining us to adoption as sons. So a gap that, that we didn't see in Genesis is now being fulfilled. It doesn't contradict the story of Genesis. In fact, it fits. It starts to help us make sense of, well, why is it that sin entered into the world? And why is it that, that God even let the serpent in to tempt Eve? And why is it that, that uh, we see all these nations rise up against God? And, and what is the, what's the whole point here? This seems kind of futile. God created this thing that was so good and it fell. And it turns out that he did it in verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace. He did it so that because, of his, because he wanted to show how gracious a God he is, he wanted to be glorified for the grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So we get some of those gaps filled in as we read other scripture. It helps to inform us of what's back there as we march through. So that helps us fill in some of the gaps. So not everything is is in there. And sometimes you need to go through scripture and find, as you're studying it, you need to find, well, what exactly is uh, some of the things that aren't present in the text in front of me, but Scripture helps fill in. And, and again, with that idea that we, we have the truth of God progressively revealed to us as we march forward in time, um, understand that there are places where Scripture takes us back and explains things that aren't explained in the text, but whenever it does that, it never deletes the original meaning and it never takes away what it is we've learned. In fact, as in these cases, the pre-existence of Christ, the fact that he made everything and why God did it and what's our role, it all fits the text that's there. It never reinterprets it for us. It never causes us to go, oh, well, the author didn't understand what he was writing. All too often, it's because you don't know your Bible well enough to see that the author actually understood full well what he was writing. It's very rare that you could make an argument, truly, that that's the case. And usually it's delineated in Scripture. We were studying in John, and we see when the high priest says that Jesus must die, or, or all the nation will be lost, or, or as he's saying, it says, he says what he doesn't understand. He didn't get what it was that... He was saying when he said that, when it was true, Jesus would die for the people. So as we look, I I did make a list of some of the topics that uh, we've covered in Genesis. We've covered the transcendence of God, that God is truly above us, and we looked at that. In Job 38, God, God is so far above us, he is nothing like us. He's completely different. He doesn't change. Even, you know, one of the popular topics of the last two to three years has been the emotion of God. Even uh, God's emotions are not like our emotions. And he's described in ways of having anger or changing his mind. Just so we can have, because we do those things. And 
it gives us an idea of, okay, God's different, but it's kind of like this, kind of like God has an outstretched arm. God doesn't have arms, but it gives you an idea of God actually working and carrying things out. And so we see that, um, that God is truly transcendent. God is above everything that happens in Genesis. And we could walk through Genesis and see that. We could see the eminence of God. That's kind of the opposite, where transcendent God is a God that's far off and doesn't interact and doesn't involve himself, but has total power and control over everything. But he's also a God who has eminence. He's a God who is deeply involved with the characters as they march through Genesis. And, and probably the greatest example of the eminence of God is when he's wrestling with Jacob. It's kind of like, but he's God. How does he take on a body and do that? That, 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 that idea that our God isn't like the Muslim God who's almost completely transcendent. Our God somehow comes down and deals with us and has personal relationships with people in the text. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to see that we have both those things in Genesis. And, and then you can combine those two things and you end up with uh, the sovereignty of God. Well, how does the sovereignty of God work? Well, it's got to somehow work with this God who transcends all of creation and we weren't there, we don't understand how he did it all and we don't have his understanding. And yet he comes down and he hears the cries of his people. And he, he stops for dinner with, with Abraham to discuss what it is he's going to do in the world. You know, that, that statement, should we tell him what, what's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? Do we lower ourselves to, to be present with man? And we see that as well. The sovereignty of God playing out through being far above everything and yet actively involved. And that's, that's probably why we all struggle with sovereignty of God and predestination and everything there and why we can't understand it is because somehow God is both transcendent and eminent. There's a goodness of God that's throughout Genesis. You could go through Genesis from, from the promise after the fall to his, his treatment of Joseph and his raising Joseph up from the situation that his brothers put him in that God ultimately put him in, but God ultimately was being good to those people. There's, a, there's the idea of that there's righteous judgment. And again, you could walk through and see the righteousness of God. Righteous being, he does the right things that if you were to be in a court of law, it looks like he's done what's right. He's, done, he's made the correct judgment. And over and over again, he makes the correct judgment. Even when choosing Jacob over Esau, it's the right thing because you look at Esau and the type of man he was and you look at Jacob and you realize that, okay, God was righteous in that judgment. We learn things about family structure. In fact, that's one of the huge issues that we see in Genesis. Not only how were families to be structured, but what happens when you mess with this. It's another topic that we see in the challenges. Again, we look at Jacob and what happened by having four wives and what happened with his kids and his wives. And it's just, we see the mess that can occur and why that's important to God. We see good versus evil. The whole idea that uh, um, you think of the, the poem, Tiger, Tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare to frame thy symmetry? It should be symmetry, but I never understood why they did it. But it's a great poem. Um, there's also a poem by the same author, Little Lamb, which is... 
but the two of them together are the, the, the forces of good and evil. And what do we learn about the forces of good and evil? And all, immediately we see both are, are present there in, in chapter 3, and that God has a plan and, and will take care of them all, but they're certainly all present. And that somehow evil has this force outside of man, but man himself is the one that does these things and is responsible for them. And that intertwines with the sovereignty of God and the way he judges rightly. We see that the earth is subjugated to sin and its effects and, and how that plays out. And, and it eventually becomes important as we, even to this day, in the way that creation groans for restoration. We see things about death and dying, about nations, about covenant. We see things about commands that God gives. We see things about the kingdom of God. We learn things about salvation. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. We saw that before it was written in the New Testament. The New Testament just happens to point it out for us. Oh, by the way, Abraham was right with God. God was just in, he was correct in declaring Abraham righteous because Abraham believed. It's just being spelled out a little more clearly for us in the New Testament, but it's in there. How does salvation work? The whole seed, son, Messiah being the thing that I would say pushes this narrative forward as we work through Genesis is looking forward to that seed, son, Messiah character that's coming, that's mentioned in three and we didn't realize it, but he's the one who started everything before verse 1 in chapter 1. But you get the feeling that that's somehow related. And then we see that God builds a people for himself. We see that there is, in fact, a people of God. And we certainly are people of God. But this is a special group of people of God. It's different, not better, but certainly different. Having different roles and responsibilities than we do as we look back on it. But certainly... The original hearers of this text would say, yeah, there is, God is specifically working with a group of people. So as we look at, at, the, Old, at the Old Testament, we say, okay, how do we handle it in light of what we know now? And nine times out of ten, it's actually probably in there already, and they knew what it is that the New Testament said. The New Testament is just helping us clarify it a little bit more. But it doesn't change what's in there. In fact, the New Testament very often, very often looks back at the Old Testament to get the foundation for a truth that they're actually teaching. Um, and and I want to walk through some of those things. That are, that are taught. Let's see. Kind of covered Psalm 110 already. We may go back there a little bit. Um, so let's look at some instances where what Genesis says, specifically in chapters 1 and 2, where it's mentioning the creative order, and the way the New Testament takes that text and deals with that text. And, and so that we can see, okay, what are ways we are supposed to deal with the text as we work our way through it. So turn to Matthew 25. Kind of an odd place to start. Matthew 25 
didn't double check my references. Make sure it's there. Nope, that's wrong. I've got the wrong one down. Okay, so I, I'll tell the story. Um, so they come to Jesus and they ask him, if someone comes up with the, this, where the passage is, let me know. They come to Jesus and they ask him, they bring him a coin and they say, is it, is it or they, they come to him and ask him, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? You guys all remember this story? And what does Jesus say? Okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And what's that? There we go. Thank you. But he asked for a coin itself first. Like, what does taxes have to do with Genesis? All right. Should you pay Caesar's? To pay poll tax to Caesar or not, Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin. used for the poll tax. And they brought it to him and he said, Whose likeness or whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God, the things that are God's. What are the things that belong to God? What are the things that belong to, how do they know it belongs to Caesar? got his picture on it. What things belong to God? More importantly, what has the image of God on it? So what's he teaching them about? He's taking them, they're they're trying to trick him, and he's going to teach them something profound about who they are and what they're supposed to be doing. He's telling them, do good. And why do you do good? Because you bear the image of God. Verse 26 in chapter 1, let us make man in our image according to, the like, to our likeness. There's that same word, likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. Why is it that God has, why is it that you should be obedient and do good works? Because you are made in the image of God and he owns you. You are his and you need to do those things. So Matthew 19, 4. Let's see if I got this reference right. I have no, I'm a little dyslexic. I'm a lot dyslexic. Um, but you'd think I could be more exacting and careful. 19, 4. So here we have, is it lawful in verse 3 for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And, and Jesus then takes us back to Genesis to give the reason. So first we have, should you pay taxes? Well, let's see what Genesis says. And then we have, can you divorce your wife? Well, let's see what Genesis says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. All of that's built upon the way God created Adam and Eve. He made them male and female. He made them to go together. Why would you separate them? They're meant to be together. What's this question you have about divorce? This was actually settled back in Genesis 1. Let's look at Luke. What else is, should, we, should we learn as we look through? 
and learn about creation. Luke 3. So in Luke 3, starting in verse 23, we have this genealogy of Jesus. And it starts with Jesus, and it goes through Joseph, Eli, Mathat, and it works all the way down, and it lists everyone. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Terah, keeps going back further in time. Son of Shem, the son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of... Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Who's the son of God? Who else is the son of God listed here? Adam. Well, that's weird. We're not gods, right? No, I'm not Mormon. (laughs) Yes, it's saying that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God, But it's also saying that, look, you as people were divinely created. Your father, not by the fact that he fathered you in a physical sense, but ultimately we are the children of God. And we should have that as we read through Genesis and we see, well, who was Adam? Who was the the father of Adam? Adam was a son of God. And we have to be careful how we deal with that. That again, we don't become Mormon and say that that God with one of his wives begat Adam, who he then gave a planet to, and, and now they're off and running. And it's not at all what that's saying. But it is, the text is making it, clear that, that we're all ultimately descended back with God as our father, as it is supposed to be, and, in, and, and we find ourselves in rebellion against him. Again, it gets to that idea of image. In the image of God, we were created. But it gives you kind of an idea of who, who God is. So Adam is referred to here as a son of God. Probably a little less might be a way to do that because he's not the firstborn of all life. We already saw that in Colossians 1 and even the reference by David in Psalms 110.1 that, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's above everything in creation. He's the firstborn of all life. If that's a struggle for you, please feel free to come up and talk to me. I don't want you to be confused about that. We are not deity. We are not God. Again, he transcends us. He's far above us. Jesus himself was both God and man. But he was in that line of Adam that came forth from God. But we are not deity at all. Not even close. We don't even become deity someday. Ever. Um, Romans 5. Kind of a tough, tough chapter to work through. But this is talking about uh, the difference between Christ and Adam. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed to man. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So we find out that in, in Romans 
5, we're finding out that Adam is, is our head, that he is above all of us, that in that, if we did our genealogy, each one of you in this room, if you did your genealogy, you get back to um, Adam. You are a son of Adam. You're in this line that's been created by God that holds a special place, but, but Christ would be the firstborn. We see that, that we are all related to Adam, and, and through that teaching, we, we find out that Christ is also not only somehow related to this Adam, but he is, he is like him and that he is also above us. He is also somehow going to, if you cover, read through this chapter, he is also going to be our representative in the same idea that Adam is, but, but we ourselves are descended from Adam and Christ we are not tied to in that regard. No one is descended from Christ in that physical form. So his, the word would be headship is, is different than Adam's. But that whole idea that we are all descended from Adam is given to us in Genesis. A proper understanding of Genesis gives us a proper understanding of how it is, we'll make the big jump, how it is that that we sinned in Adam, but also that we can, have, we can have eternal salvation through Christ, that Christ can represent us through his death and resurrection. And having a proper understanding of Genesis gives us that. Those are the things that are, that are foundational in Genesis 1 through 3, that then as we move forward, we see the New Testament gives light to and helps us gain an understanding of. We turn over to Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the re- revealing of the sons of God. Is that term again? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, as we read through one through three, we see, we saw that. We saw that God makes the land really hard to farm. It makes it really hard to grow things. There's thorns. Uh, there's droughts, there's rain. There, if you look through Genesis, a lot of what pushes people around in groups is, is famine and where they need to go based on where the food is. And life is hard in Genesis. And why is that? It's because, well, we, we can carry it back to the sin of Adam and we realize that. And here Romans is just fleshing that out a little bit for us where we see that creation is subject to sin be, or subject to sin because it's tied to our sin. We are the ones who put it through our action in Adam are the ones who caused it to be that way. So when we look around at the, at our, at the suffering and, and the pain and the famine and, and all the things that we'd love to give credit to something else to, it's ultimately us. And so in one way, when we look at the disasters of the world, they say, well, these are all because of climate change. The fact that it was record highs, that's climate change. If there's record lows, that's climate change, which is all man's fault. And you can say, yes, I totally agree with you. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that we are the ones who screwed everything up, but we did it 6,000 years ago. And we're still under the weight of all of our sin. Your sinning continuing today is continuing 
the subjection of the earth to sin. And we're seeing all these terrible things. Why? Because of man. <laughs> Not because we drive cars, but maybe because we're sinful people and, and the earth has been placed under that curse as well. It lives in a curse. But we see that in, we see that in Genesis as well. Whoa. There we go. I'm marking the page and I don't want to mark the page. Romans 1. We're in Romans a lot. Other ways that the New Testament looks back and, and examines. The first two, three chapters. Um, Romans 1, we'll start in 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Sounds like we're pretty bad and unrighteous. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have clearly been seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You understand that, that not only is this embedded in us, but also in the first two chapters of Genesis, that's clearly made. Romans has not explained anything different. It's pointing you back to Genesis. Understand what Genesis says. It's going to build on that. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. It's a good description of what sin actually is. And if we look back at what happened in, in Genesis 3, how were they tempted to sin? Who tempted Adam and Eve? Somebody just say it, please. Say. Okay, so Satan did, and he was in the form of an angel? A snake. He came as a form of creation, and he said, hey, I'm creation. Do you believe me or do you believe the one who created me? They didn't honor God as God, but they came futile in their speculations. They thought, maybe this snake knows more than God. Let's listen to Mr. Snake. And their foolish heart was darkened. So now here he is. Here he is. Paul is explaining to us what took place in the garden and why, why it's important to us so that we can understand what in this created world tempts us to sin and we assume can give us pleasure beyond what God can give us? What about the, what's made somehow trumps in our minds the one that made it? Professing to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Then it goes on to explain what happens. But that's all rooted in Genesis. He's just, he just exegeted Genesis for us. And that's the way we should exegete Genesis. We should look at it. And we can look at what exactly happened there. It was that man took, looked at something that was smart and beautiful in the serpent and seemed to be wise. And they assumed it had more wisdom and knowledge and understanding and, and could trump what God said. Hebrews 4. 8 through 11. And this is dealing specifically with rest, with that, that Sabbath day that's presented in, in the first two chapters. 
You remember God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. So, 4, 8 through 11, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works, just as God did. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So how many of you have entered that rest? Raise your hand. Even if you've retired, have you entered that rest yet? Have you finally been able to say, I've accomplished all. I'm perfect. I'm good. I'm just done. I did it. If nobody bothers me and nobody comes in the room, I've entered the rest. I'm going to have the rest. No, it's a, it's a picture of what is to come, that rest yet to come. And, and here we find out that when God rests from all creation because it is good, it is something that he then gives to us. But we can look at this and see, well, they never enter any kind of rest. Adam and Eve, after the fall, there is no rest. And we can go back and see, but there's supposed to be. And we should be longing for that rest because Genesis 1 promises it. Genesis 1 gives us the template of what that rest will be. And then one other, we got time for one more where Scripture uses it. And this is over in Revelation. Revelation 22. Oh, I have one through six. But just um, understand that when, uh, much like with the flood, what was it like when Noah was in the ark outside? It was dark. Okay, what, what was out there? Water. Water covered the face of the face of the earth. Where did we hear that before? In Genesis. It's like God said, starting all over. Done. We see a destruction of the creation of things with stars in, in Revelation, with stars falling from the sky, sun and moon being blackened out, the land destroyed and falling on itself. We see destruction of the original creation. And then we see here in 22, verse 1 through 6, if you, if you wonder, well, why are we given this picture of Eden? Well, maybe because that's where we're headed back to. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street on either side of the river, there was a tree of life, ooh, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, nor will there be a need for light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever. Stop there. So we see that somehow the future is as good as Eden, but even better. We don't even need these things that were created, and yet we will be, creation will be dismantled and the new heavens and new earth will be even better. But still have that, that original creation, Genesis 1, one and, or Genesis 1 and 2 as kind of, a, again, a type or a shadow of what is, what is to come. So as you, as you work through a passage of Scripture, and today we just kind of walk through, here are some of the, uh, the two different ways 
and then get to there. The two different ways you can kind of, two major ways you can kind of look at a, a passage, you can either exegete it and go, go through the verses themselves and have a knowledge and understanding of what's in the verses and the implications that are made there. And it's always a good idea to take those implications and compare them to the rest of scripture before you come up with some new idea that nobody else has ever thought of. That's usually a really bad idea. Um, if you're the only one who ever thought of it, it's it's been a long time, so it's, you're probably off. Um, and you can see the way that the, the New Testament actually deals with it. And they do that. They look back and they say, well, hey, look, based on the way God made man and woman, don't you suppose he meant for them to stay together? Or based on the way that uh, uh, we ourselves put our likeness and image on things to say we own it, didn't God do that? And shouldn't you be obeying then the one who created you? So those are the ways it takes the text and it honors the text for what it originally meant. It's not bringing anything new to it. It's not changing our understanding. It's, it's actually supporting it or building upon it as it looks forward. So that's one way to take a passage of scripture is to take what's there and honor its original intent and flesh out what's there. And the other is to actually take it topically through one of those several things I listed that are in Genesis and look at it topically. Okay, what does it say about and then name the topic? But it is important to handle rightly. And, and next time we'll go through kind of a topical, we'll pick a topic. If anyone has a topic they want to see us walk through next week, I'd be happy to, a topic that's in Genesis. Um, otherwise, I have a couple picked. Um, but it is important. I, again, as our role here at the church is, when it comes to the Word of God, is to, one, feed you, which is, you come in, and we did that chapter 1 through 50, we fed you Genesis, right? Um, Josh comes up Sunday morning, or we'll have a guest speaker here on a Sunday morning, and they actively are feeding you the Word, but you yourselves need to be in the Word, and you need to be able to, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, you need to be able to cut it right. You need to be able to see what you're reading and have a firm understanding and not just say, well, I think this means, but actually know what it means, and you need to start gaining those tools. All of that is based upon the consistency of being in the Word, and I just encourage all of you, you need to be daily in the Word with some plan in mind so that you can accomplish it of how it is I'm going to be in the Word, whether that's a chapter a day, four chapters a day, whatever it is, figure out what it is that you need to be doing to be in the Word, and those other things can come along with that. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you again for this book for the revelation of your word and your thoughts and ideas. Lord, it's almost foolish for us to be amazed at how much we find in your word, knowing who its author ultimately is. And uh, Lord, we just give you great praise for that. I want to just pray that you would help us now as we come together to worship you, that we would be encouraged by you for those that are hurting, uh, that this would be a time of rest and healing looking forward to that ultimate rest that we receive one day. Lord, I just pray for those that uh, have strength this morning to do so, that they would encourage one another, that they would find those who are weak and help them. And Lord, that those who uh, do not know you, who don't understand uh, the salvation that comes only through your Son, Lord, that those things would be made clear to them this morning and that they might uh, have either individuals or or even uh, from the pulpit, or even from the songs we sing, have their eyes open to understand you and, and your love and your desire to save the lost. 
in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.